Hey listeners, this is Sarah Ashley of Nerds on Film. On February 24th at 5.30 Pacific Time, we nerds will be streaming a live commentary track for Hollywood's biggest night, the 85th Annual Oscars. Tune in to listen to us do what we do best, make jokes, and discuss movies. It's like normal Nerds on Film, but longer and in real time. We hope you'll join us for the big night, and you can find out more at nerdonomy.com. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Listeners, thank you for my absence last week. This is, of course, Eric Brickmont from Nerds on History, and uh, I am back this week, ready to do ready to do this episode. Of course, you know Brian did the episode by himself last week. Be quiet. So uh, it's only fair that I do this episode uh, by myself this week. Of course, Brian was not exactly in favor of that, but uh, that's why uh, I gagged him and tied him to the floor. I'm here. I'm here, everybody. Hey, how did you get untied? I did things I should never speak of. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickwell. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, it's good to have you back, sir. Oh, it is so good to be back. Yeah. I, I I apologize to our listeners out there. I vowed I would never miss an episode, but unfortunately, uh, this p- pandemic that has been going around the world lately uh, caught up to me, and uh, I was I was quite ill and indisposed. I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, either way, it's good to have you back. And thank you for taking the reins all by yourself and uh, <laughs> and taking over and giving us our, our episode last week. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you know, it was only ten minutes, but it was a. Uh very small token for those who are interested in learning about Valentine's Day, and it's one that I think we'll we'll go over again in the in the future. Oh, in much more detail for sure. Yeah, because yeah. we didn't talk about hardly anything. Like we didn't talk about Cupid at all. We didn't talk about a lot of the weird cultural customs that we've that have developed because of it. Yeah, we'll save it for next time. Yeah, that, that's why they have years so that we can do it again. There you go. Very optimistic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, year two of nerds on history. <laughs> of course, but, you had your impending wisdom teeth removal as well so that made it difficult for us to do any recording and as it is i'm still recovering from that yes and thank you for coming and joining us even though i I know it's been a few days but you're you're still you know recovering yes it's true and thankfully it is due to very good anti-inflammatory medication that i'm i'm able to talk without yeah also known as drugs doping you up yeah for the record, I am not under any sort of opiates. I am just using <laughs> prescription medication, but, you know, stuff that if I didn't have it, I would be in quite a amount of discomfort. So that being said, let's talk about some news that's happened this week. This is a big deal before we get into our main topic. Yeah. Um, Pope Benedict XVI talking about resigning from his office. That's that's huge Cool. Last news. time that happened was 600 years ago, so there's no modern precedence for it at all. None whatsoever. Um and to be fair, only five popes have resigned under for various reasons. But um, I don't know approximately how many have there have there been. Benedict would be the two hundred and sixty fifth pope. Wow! So five of those two sixty five is that's a two hundred and sixty popes died as the pope. Think about that. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I think we need to do a whole episode on on the history of the papacy, but we're not going to do it this week. We're going to yeah, do we it. We have another topic for this week, but we'll, let's do it next week. For sure, and it's kind of unusual for us. We're going to shout out what we're going to do next week, but yeah, but ready. you know, we're going to have Pope Mania next week. Exactly, <laughs> and I'm surprised we haven't talked about it because you know what? Being that I was raised Catholic, being that I wait, you were raised Catholic, <laughs> shocking, I know. <laughs> uh, and being that we've talked about the fact that you know I had a very deep background in the Catholic religion before becoming an adult. But you know what? We can spend this week talking about what you have a very deep background in. We can finally do dedicate an episode to Egypt, right? Egypt proper. Because yeah. we've touched on Egypt before several times. I mean, Yeah, we've always mentioned it as a tangent in a footnote in another topic. Right. But we've never talked about Egypt by itself. itself. And, and that's actually a request that we've gotten by quite a few of our listeners on sure. our Facebook page. And even a few people have emailed me. and just been Yeah, like, hey. well, we've also gotten requests for other topics, too. We've yet to cover... The Roman Empire. We've yet to cover uh, the Greeks. We've yet to cover okay, dynasties in China. Or, you know, there's so much that we could go over. Yeah, and we, 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 I think we've tried to stay away from ancient history itself because that's what's so pedestrian about history. We're trying to, to talk about the things in history that are less known about. You know, True. but at the same time, the foundation for history is ancient history, obviously, right? I mean, that's what everything right. else is built off of, and particularly in Egypt, we have so many examples of where 
we have customs and traditions and even words in our English language today that all have an origin going back to Egypt. And you know, there's an old saying that all roads lead to Rome. Well, I would I would dispute that. I think uh, I think more of them lead to Egypt. Right. But, well, um, I mean, Egypt is the first great empire, right? Absolutely. I mean, you can argue with the Mesopotamians too, around the same time, but and they were a superb empire and they had a lot to contribute as well. But Egypt, in terms of influence and power, in terms of square footage, in terms of where it was able to to spend its influence too, had the upper hand. Okay. And had the upper hand for a very long time. Now, we, of course, had a chance to do a lovely meetup a couple weeks ago. <laughs> On Super Bowl Sunday. And Eric, who quite impressively, might I add, was a tour guide at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, which he used to work at as a tour guide in San Jose, and uh, rocked it out, dude. I gotta say, you had no notes, and you just kind of went for it, and... It was it was heralding back to an earlier time for me, and you know, yeah, it was a three hour long tour, a three hour tour. We weren't stranded on an island at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we have just about as many people as that were on Gilligan's Island. I'm afraid, but <laughs> it's true. And we, we we had a professor. We did. We had a yeah, we had a skipper. <laughs> we had a, a gorgeous blonde girl there. So yeah, it yeah. was all you it know. Was, it was kind of like Gilligan's Island. Exactly. Only we knew exactly where we were going. Yeah. So who? What would Sarah qualify then as? If we, <laughs> I'm not going to say Gilligan because she'll hit me. Well, she'd um, probably be ginger, I guess. Yeah, she'd be ginger. She, yeah, sure. she's kind of ginger, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, you're ginger. There you go. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so uh, anyway, you did a great job with that. Thank you. And well, we're going to do it again because of course we had so many people who, who wanted to go who because I don't watch football <laughs> schedule it on. Of course, the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl Sunday. <laughs> right. That was funny requesting that day off of work too. So I have a family event going on. They're like, yeah. Sure. No, seriously, I do. It just, it's, it's coincidence, I promise. <laughs> so, I, yeah, it was pretty funny. I mean, I, I didn't even realize it. But we're going to do it again probably in the, you know, a few months. You know, maybe towards the beginning of summer, end of springtime or something. We'll, we'll put another tour together. So those of you who are listening who live in the San Francisco Bay Area who want to join us, or maybe, hey, you were out here for graduations at the time or vacations or what have you, come join us. We'll, we'll do it again. That would be fun. Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Because you're clearly the knowledgeable one on Egypt here, and I everything I've learned has either been from a civics class or from you, pretty much. So let me ask you, if there was nobody out there, or rather, if there was somebody out there who knew nothing about the Egyptians, what would be the first thing you'd want them to learn? I mean, that's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, there are, there are things that everyone has already kind of picked up on, right? Because they're, I don't want to say cliche, but they're in popular culture, right? Okay. In popular media, so pyramids and mummies and all of that. So I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Okay, well, let me rephrase it then. Because you have your own kind of story for knowledge, for how you learned about Egypt. So what was the first thing for you that drew you to Egypt? Well, my father, of course. We've talked about this on the show before, that my okay. dad, um, you know, he has a passion for history and, and archaeology and astronomy and all of these things. And so I grew up with all these different uh, sciences. And when I was a kid, there was just something that absolutely fascinated me about pyramid architecture about organization, about the fact that the people who lived so many thousands of years ago were able to come together and were able to organize themselves in such a way to do these amazing things to the point where we would have, you know, specialists, archaeologists, um, architects, engineers, mathematicians, literally pausing and having to scratch their head and think, how did they do this? And it's, it's those kind of moments that when I was younger really inspired my my direction and where I wanted to go because it is really quite incredible when you think that to the Egyptians, the most sophisticated tools they had for surveying were a plumb bob, okay, so weight suspended, suspended by a string, uh, a horizon, whether it be the actual horizon on the, on the edge of the earth there or an artificial horizon that they created for purposes of surveying and, and measurement, uh, and a square. You know, two pieces of wood joined at a uh, precise right angle. And that was the tools that they used to lay down the foundations and the building of pyramids and pretty much everything else that they did in terms of, of architecture. And that blows our minds today because anybody out there listening who has a background in any of those things that I just mentioned, any of those professions, or even just even a basic knowledge of what they entail, knows how much technology we rely on today, how many sophisticated surveying equipment and all of that that we've uh, developed for that purpose that we employ, that we use, how lost so many of us would be to go back to the basics. 
but I think um, they've done they've done it though. You know, experimental archaeology is a, a hobby of mine. I think it's fantastic. I think it's great, whether it be flint napping or what have you. And people have attempted to build pyramids. Um, when I was a kid, there was this really great documentary on Nova, and it was I was probably like eleven or twelve years old when I saw it, and it was called This Old Pyramid. You remember that old PBS show, This Old House? It's still on, actually. It's still yeah. on, yeah. Um, but they they were attempting to build their own pyramid. Of course, it was small scale, but they resigned themselves to use only the tools and techniques of the time. No modern cranes, no uh, you know powered chisels or anything like that. They were going to use real Egyptian people who were using real Egyptian quarrying techniques that had lasted the test of time for thousands of years, and they were going to build their own pyramid. And they did. And it was fantastic. And they had all these different experts who had different ideas and theories about how it was built because, you know, there were no manuals back then. They didn't lay out, you know, the, the Egyptian's guide to pyramid building. That didn't exist. So they had to come up with, um, through experimental archaeology, an understanding of how it was all done. And what really came at the end was this, this overpowering realization among all of the experts that were there. These people were extraordinarily intelligent. They were very intuitive and that they had to, in many ways, create the foundation for modern uh, architecture in, in just trying it and just experimenting with it and just doing it. And that, that always blew my mind when I was younger and it still does today. That's a hell of a place to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine, though, that that's where all those questions came from. Yeah. Is, well, how do they get to be that smart? You know, what do they, what do they believe? How do they... Where did the their how did they develop that method for developing for build, doing pyramids? But they didn't have right a formal <clears throat> written process, at least. Well, I'll tell you one thing: the Egyptians had from the get go, which was luck. Their society in in the Nile Valley, right? I want you to imagine the Nile Valley for a minute. You've probably seen pictures of it on you know television or online right. or what have you, but it is a really kind of bizarre place because it is surrounded by desert to the east and to the west. It has a very large, very choppy, watered ocean to the north, or, or sea, I should say, the Mediterranean. And then along the Nile River, as you progressively go further south, which, of course, you know, it's the largest river in the world, so it connects much of uh, Saharan Africa up with you know, North Africa, you have these rapids. They're called cataracts, and they are extremely difficult to get by in you know, modern shipping uh, methods uh, alone, let alone ancient boats. I mean, it was really difficult to, to traverse them. And so the Egyptians had this kind of natural barrier, and it was this barrier that allowed their civilization to essentially go unchallenged and unchecked. Whereas so many other ancient cultures in and around that time, so we're talking around 6,000 uh, years ago, right? So in around 4,000 BCE and 1,000 years up until the foundation of the real, you know, true Egyptian state, so many of those other cultures were being assimilated and just starting to start their foundations and then getting overtaken by others and falling and what have you. Whereas the Egyptians were just left alone and they had an opportunity to form trade routes that they knew and had established. They learned how to sail the river so that they could, you know, go further south and do it safely, but others couldn't go the other way. Uh, they never liked the ocean. They did not like, uh, they were not good maritime sailors. We talked about that in our very first yep. episode. They right. called the uh, the Mediterranean the Wajwir, the Great Green, and it was something they were frightened of. Some of the greatest pieces of Egyptian literature um, from Egypt's Middle Kingdom came out of this fear of the ocean. There's okay. this, this great story of the shipwrecked sailor who he's uh, traveling and gets caught by a storm and sent to this deserted island where now he's the only person who has to contend against all these hostile forces. And he comes in contact with this giant serpent creature that he has to face off against. So, you know, there was this real perception of fear that kept them from expanding out using the, the Mediterranean, but they still used the coastline along the Mediterranean up into the Levant, up into water, what is now modern day, you know, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, uh, up into Syria and what have you. And this gave them complete dominance and control and mastery of those areas because they could be safe in their own borders, but they could go out and perform these excursions and expand themselves. So in the way the Nile, that's it makes sense why they revered the Nile so much because the Nile was their source of life, as it is with any civilization, water being the source of life. But because it was able to provide that protection, and because it was they were the ones who knew the, the river better than any other civilization nearby, that's what gave them their superiority. 
Exactly. And so much of Egyptian creation mythology is born out of the water, literally out of the river. Uh, we, again, we talked about that on a, on a previous episode when we talked about the significance of the shape of the pyramid and how it was this this first peak of earth and land that kind of came out of that primeval ocean. Um, I will say, though, that the Egyptians were also surrounded by contradictions, and it was a, a founding uh, philosophy for them, really. There was this concept and this idea of balance and symmetry, which was underlining to Egyptian beliefs and philosophies throughout in their entire history. And to sum it up in a single word, if we had to pick one, is an Egyptian word called ma'at. And ma'at literally translates in a couple different forms as truth and balance. That's its two most prominent forms. And if I was an Egyptian living on the Nile River and then looking directly into my backyard, I have desert and barren wasteland. And so I have cultivatable, fertile uh, living area you know, right up to the doorstep of the desert. I can literally take one step from fertile soil into sand in Egypt, and you still can today. It's pretty wild. Those ideas and contradictions just in their environment were, I think, very influential into, into creating that guiding principle in philosophy. And if you look at everything they did, so their architecture, right? Everything is symmetrical. You don't have variations and sides on the pyramids. You don't have some strange structures being created as that result, right? If you look at the, the way the temples are all laid out, everything is even. Everything is mirrored. You could t- stick a mirror right up to one side of it and it would simply duplicate what was already on the other side. That wasn't done by accident. That was all based around this principle and philosophy. Even the writing, even hieroglyphics, had to be written in a very symmetrical, very specific form. Any variation from that was considered to be disrespectful. So it was uh, it was a big thing. Interesting. And not a lot of people realize that. They just think the Egyptians were neat freaks. They just <laughs> thought that, you know, they're really anal retentive. <laughs> but there was a, yeah. a, there was a reason for that. Well, I mean, that's... I think that's true with with any culture. When you look at what the culture values, it helps you explain so much of their practices. One of the things that I thought was interesting, at least with the way that the the Rosicrucian Museum breaks down Egyptian history, mm-hmm. was they they pretty much break it down into the kingdoms: the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. In a way, I mean, there <clears throat> there are key fundamental galleries with different themes, right? Right. But um, certainly, the way the afterlife gallery is broken down. Because, you know, and I, I, talk, I talked about this on the tour. Um, I love this analogy that when we're looking at the history of the Egyptians, we look at funerary uh, items as being very guiding of the time periods. It's right. a great way right. for us to track changes in time periods in Egypt because we're talking about a history of over 3,000 years. Right. And in many ways, I think that if archaeologists in the future look back on America and they look to find... Uh, a definitive timeline of how things progressed, I think they'll look at our cars. Because cars change in such a way that, you know, you look at the Model T and you look at, you know, the Chevy Volt today, they're so fundamentally different from each other, but they're all based around the same thing. Right. Four Um, wheels, a steering wheel, and and, it's a platonic form, actually, if you want to go philosophical for a second. (laughs) Yeah. But the changes that happened reflect the time and reflect the people. You know, in the 1950s, there was this whole obsession with muscle cars and big, flashy, shiny cars that had lots and lots of metal on them. No seatbelts, though. Seatbelts came around a little bit later when there was more of an emphasis on safety. You then see that emphasis on safety increase with the invention of the airbag and side impact airbags and chassis that are designed not to roll. So there's a conscious thought that's going along in this process, and you can examine the conscious thought of the people of the time. The same thing is true in Egypt with funerary uh, you know, items like coffins, for example, is a big, big thing what I'm talking about. And what's cool about the museum is, uh, the Egyptian museum is that you can go into that room and you can see the earliest coffins, which were very small box, like people were put into fetal they positions, look like chests, basically. Yeah. It looks like something you would keep your clothes in compared to the later periods where they were anthropomorphized, had the face of the individual carved onto right. it, had elaborate right. texts that were carved onto it. Um, I would almost as jewelry would even be carved in and adorning the individual. I would almost go as far as to say the earliest weren't even really coffins; they were more ossuaries. Um, I mean, I know an ossuary is more a box for for the remains. It's kind of a post, a way way post mortem uh, concept, but like a way of being respectful to what's left of the person. But 
they look very close to what an ossuary would look like because of the fact that they didn't lay the body down in right. it, you know? Yeah. The fact that they were using wood was extremely significant. Yeah. Wood is not in great abundance in Egypt. Where you find it is, of course, up in the Nile Delta. So the part where the Nile diverges off into many different little uh, streams, you know, there's still kind of the Nile proper, but there's all these different other Niles that, that kind of are born out of that. And you have a lot more vegetation in that area and you have a lot more wood. But even still, the wood is pretty scarce. So if you were going to cut down a tree, you were doing it for somebody who was extremely important or wealthy. Right. Uh, and that stayed true throughout Egyptian history. But the fact that they were doing it that early, you know, they didn't want to use a whole lot of wood. So they were just making these very small boxes. And so really the only way that people could be fit in them properly is to put them in that fetal position, which I'm sure also is no accident because when you're talking about rebirth, literally the concept and idea of being reborn, you look at a child and you look at, you know, the way the child's children oftentimes pull themselves into. And of course the fetus inside the womb, all this would have been known by the Egyptians. And this was that, that fetal position. It mirrors throughout many different cultures and societies. Yeah. What's interesting though, is that the Egyptians moved out of that though. And they moved into these longer, more traditional, like you would consider a coffin to be today. But, um, because of their environment, and because they were such keen observers of the world around them, there were still very strict rules about how the body was placed in the coffin. So now oftentimes we find that it would be placed on its side. And it would be placed facing towards the west, which of course is the setting sun. And that was the, the west bank of the Nile. That's where you know, these burials were taking place. Um, that's where these, these people would be put to rest. And they had these eyes that were carved on, or not carved on, well, some of them may have been, but oftentimes they're painted onto the coffins. Yeah. And they would be facing out towards the side of the living. So they would watch out onto the east and onto the living side. That was that was one of the things I found fascinating was, isn't there even some um, didactics there that talk about follow the eyes? Because the eyes are all, they're all over the artifacts we looked at, the two eyes. And when you think about the fact that, they, that it was no accident that they put them on the west side, of the Nile, because it was symbolic for the end of the day, the end of... The end of life. End of life. Looking back toward the east, where the sun would rise again, and of course where the living reside, is that deep, that very beautiful symbolism of the cycle of life, and the cycle of, of eternity, even, too. <clears throat> That's what the Egyptians were truly obsessed with. People think, oh, the Egyptians were obsessed with death, because they developed such, you know, strict rules around mummification and burial. And they went to such great lengths to make sure it happened. But it's the exact opposite. The Egyptians were obsessed with the continuation of life. And they believed in an afterlife that was a true reflection of the world that they lived in. And they thought that their soul simply continued on and existed in that form. It really didn't change. Um, there was a, a concept called the Ka. K-A. And when you see it, um, it's the two arms upstretched. Uh, it looks kind of like uh, Cornholio from the Mucus and Butthead, and <laughs> minus the shirt being pulled over the head. Oh. But it's just these two arms pulled out. Who ever would have thought that on a history podcast, the name Cornholio would show up? Uh, I would say anyone who's been listening to us since episode one. <laughs> but the, Don't ask where the name comes from, I don't want to say. <laughs> the history and the etymology of... The great Cornholio. The great Cornholio. Legend and fact. <laughs> oh, dear God. Okay. <laughs> but you have this symbol um, of these arms upstretched, and they're upstretched in praise and, and admiration and worship. And that's because the continuation of this aspect of the soul was extremely important. This was your physical duplicate. And it needed a place to come back to, which was your body, which is why the body was so closely uh, preserved. And your family was expected to give you offerings that would continue to allow your soul to exist. And it actually had to come back to the body, become part of the body again, receive the ka of the offerings, because everything had a soul to the Egyptians. Even inanimate objects had a ka, because they existed in that afterlife. And then it would return to the afterlife with the sustenance needed to survive. There are other concepts and ideas of the soul. There was the ba, and the ba is almost kind of what we would consider to be a ghost. It was an entity that was capable of existing and interacting with the living world. And so if you did not take good care of your ancestors, if you did not bring those offerings to them or, or make sure there were you know, something in place to make sure that those offerings were brought to them, the Ba was thought to actually be able to come back and manipulate the, the, the physical world and cause you, you know, ill health or cause you problems. 
Uh, when you think about curses, right. that's something that's oftentimes thrown around with the Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't even have a word for a curse. They didn't really need one. There was this idea that the Ba could bring you bad fortune, and that was more a concept and idea of a curse, but um, that was that aspect of the soul. Right, and that's also a concept that's been mirrored by many other cultures, too. Respecting your ancestors, particularly, because you know that they're watching over you in some way. Oh, ancestor yeah. worship is a is huge in China. Yeah, very huge in China, very huge in the ancient Israeli um, mm-hmm. cultures as well. Uh, and that was the one, when we talk about cross-cultural parallel development, uh, <laughs> the common theme of, of a lot of our episodes, the one thing I thought was very interesting about the tour was when you talked about how the home place, there was a, there was a dedicated place for, for honoring the dead. And we still have that today, when you yeah. think about it. I mean, at, at my... My house in oh, my dad's house in Colorado. There is a picture of my grandfather of, that we that we framed right after he died, and it was him when he was in the Marine Corps. And he's got this very cool, this one dollar silver certificate that all of his infantry oh, nice. had signed. It's probably worth quite a bit of money, but it doesn't matter because it's our memorial. Yeah. To to my grandfather. Its emotional value is un, unprecedented. Right. Right. So it clearly was not just to the Egyptians, but the Egyptians did a lot of interesting things. I thought that were common, like um, leaving food out. For the dead, that's a. It's not quite done in daily, but it's done in Mexican culture, right? With the sure. Day de los Muertos, we talked about with that. The Day of the Dead, absolutely. And you know, the Egyptians had a uh, very well developed ceremony for it. Uh, essentially, your breakfast was to be offered to the to the ancestors first before anything, and it was usually something that you could make a libation over without it ruining your food. And, <laughs> right. Uh, a libation, of course, is the pouring of water to activate a spiritual significance within an item. In this case, the the caw of the food would be released to the deceased, and every single Egyptian household had some sort of ancestor altar, and they changed and they became different over time. Um, many of them were in the shape of what is called the pear or the mm-hmm. or the house. Okay, so it's this um, Egyptian word for house, and essentially it's signifying that you know this is the home of the soul and the home of the soul in the afterlife and in the living world. And you would have actual food that you would put on it and pour water over, or in times of famine when there were no food available and could not be spared to the deceased, you actually had food carved into uh, or molded into the. Uh, the actual tray itself. And so it was a, a perfectly acceptable substitute. If you didn't have actual food, you could create this kind of false food, if you will. And that was just as good. Right. Because, of course, they're not really alive, so why would they need the physical food? They don't have a physical body anymore. They have right. a spiritual body. Remember, the cause is simply a spiritual duplicate. So as right. long as it looked like it, you know, as long as it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? So, which they did have in Egypt, but uh, that's beside the point. One thing I do remember, being a uh, child of mixed heritage, um, I don't know if I've ever, have I ever talked about that in the episode before. Not really. No, I haven't. No, it's kind of interesting. I'm dominantly from a Catholic background, but my stepmom is uh, is Jewish. You know, and she was Jewish for, well, she's still, I mean, according to the laws of Judaism, she was always going to be a Jew, but she became um, Catholic a couple years ago. But um, it was very interesting taking part in some of those cultures. And one of the things that I do remember is... Uh, during either high holy days or even her family wasn't wasn't super practicing um so they they didn't honor every single saturday or no shabbat as they would call it but um one thing i do know is that when there were certain holy days it was not uncommon to light a candle to remember your your loved ones and there Mm -hmm. would be a very solemn prayer said in hebrew to their loved ones and then this another good example of this and this is a culture that's not too far away from egypt no not at all uh where you you see this ancestral worship and in more orthodox households this is done weekly you know when i believe it's part of the someone out there who's jewish please correct me if i'm wrong on this one five points to those playing the home game but um i believe it's a part of the of the shabbos tradition is to to recite the prayer and remember your your ancestors and your loved ones absolutely absolutely yeah so this belief of them honoring the dead and honoring the afterlife pretty much molded every practice of the Egyptian people, right? Everything in some way was tied to that, correct? In, in many ways, that's true. And, you know, you don't want to overemphasize it, right? You don't want to say that that was the, the whole reason for their society. But a lot of what their established and, and long-held traditions did develop as a result of was this belief in that continuation of, of, of life into the afterlife. Uh, you know, that's why the tombs were, were created in such care and detail for the wealthy, for those who could afford it. 
And that's why mummification was developed, uh, was that place to preserve the body so the Ka had a place to come back to. And that's why some of their more nasty traditions were created as well. And we don't really talk about this as, as often, but there were those who went against Egyptian custom, who did their own thing, thought out of the box, and were not always uh, revered for it. In many cases, they were actually attempted to be erased from history. And many of the methods uh, used to do this have revolved around another aspect of the Egyptian soul, and that was the name. Somebody's name was a part of your soul. It was your identity. It was uh, something that could preserve you if your family had already deceased you and was gone forever and ever and ever. If your family line had died out, for example. Uh, it was a way of your family had forgotten you and there was a time of hardship in Egypt and nobody could bring you any offerings at all. Your name still was one aspect of you that would continue to exist for all of time. And so for those who went against uh, Egyptian custom, it was you know, occasional but still happened. They would erase your name from your tomb. Right. And they would go in and they would quite literally chisel it off uh, from your tomb walls uh, or plaster that adorned them or from the, the you know, finishings on your coffin, uh, attempting to erase you from history, including also the removal of your face. Uh, these are all things that were done to forget about those individuals. And some of those people, you know, had some pretty interesting ideas. Obviously, the one that kind of comes to mind, if you're at all first in Egyptian history, is Akhenaten. So Akhenaten is this really interesting character, and he comes to us from a time in Egypt when it was very powerful and very wealthy, and there was almost this sense of confidence and freedom that the pharaoh could do something different if they wanted to. His father, a pharaoh by the name of Amunhotep III, was a very, uh, a very powerful person. He had a, a decent long reign. He had uh, a great deal of stability in the country. And he was very much in favor of the solar deities. He worshipped in particular one that had been a very minor god for a long time, uh, the Aten, which was quite literally just their word for sun disk, for the disk of the sun. And he elevated it to a whole new position. And he started working on it towards, that, towards the very end of his reign, a time when we think it's possible his son could have been ruling alongside him. There's this idea and concept called a co-regency. It's very heatedly debated within Egypt, uh, within Egyptian circles today, just because uh, many people believe that the pharaohs were strictly, I'm taking over and I'll continue they were, they were, on. They were very monarchical, is what you're saying. They were, but at the same time, it's not uncommon for monarchies around the world to have a transition phase. Maybe the, the monarch of the time is you know sick or... Uh, very young or what have you and needs guidance and so you have these situations that pop up where there's essentially two rulers one's more dominant than the other and yeah. it's quite possible because Amenhotep IV who would later change his name to Akhenaten was never supposed to become king he had an older brother his brother was named Tutmos and Tutmos was in all rights to become the next pharaoh but he died unexpectedly at a relatively young age and so here we have Amenhotep IV now, who was training to become a priest, now elevated into a totally different role and probably needed a bit more guidance because the crown prince obviously would have had that guidance from their father from a very young age. Right. There wasn't as much a need for a co-regency in those situations. But in this case, it makes perfect sense to me anyway, and a lot of other people who, who you know, study and are familiar with Egyptian history, uh, that this is a very likely situation. So I can see here now this young Amenhotep IV learning some unorthodox principles from his father, growing up in the temple, probably very deeply connected to Egyptian religion and customs and traditions, as was expected of all pharaohs, but perhaps more so for him. And now he has this idea, let's go ahead and change the whole focus of the upper class religion, okay, that, that which is all surrounded by the pharaoh, to this whole new pseudo-monotheistic belief. To him, the Aten was the supreme god. All the other ones were acknowledged up until the very later part of his reign, but were minor, insignificant, were just a, a greater part of one whole. The Aten was the primary focus of it, and the royal family now was a direct connection to that god. In fact, he assumed the role of Amenhotep III, his father, as that god. He made him that god, and he said, I am quite literally the son of the sun. That was the uh, translation of the inscription that's left behind. 
And that's pretty wild to think, you know, hey, here's this whole new belief system. We're going to throw out thousands of years of tradition and we're going to focus on me and my dad. And we're the, the big ones. And again, to make another modern parallel, there's a lot of dictatorships that talk about deifying their leader. You know, Like in North Korea. Like in North Korea today. Or um, not uncommon to, I would even say Hitler or Stalin too, were, were in a way deified. I mean, Stalin didn't like religion very much. But they were he deified was, in life in many regards. Yeah. But look at how Lenin was treated. You know, right. Upon his death, his mummification. Hey, another parallel. Yeah. Uh, and the, the reverence given to him, the carrying around of these images of their leaders and these, pro, you know, these big marches that they would do and what have you as a way of calling up their spirit, their influence. Right. Yeah, it's similar. I, I wouldn't, however, classify Akhenaten as a dictator. And I know that's not where you were going. No, not at all. But other people have. Other people have cited that as reasons for his megalomania and psychosis, which, of course, no one could ever possibly well, know. The, the word dictator in and of itself, and that's, this is a whole other topic, because um, I remember one, when I was in a world history class, sophomore year of high school, we talked about different leaders, kings, emperors, so and they said these are all different names for dictators, basically, is what he said. You know, to him, a dictator was anybody who ruled absolutely, you know, ruled without question. And yet, I don't think that's the case with a lot of these kings. There are certainly kings who were dictators, right, who acted very dictatorially and were tyrants, basically, who, yeah. you know, tyrannical. I think that's a more of appropriate word for what he was, what he was intending. But absolute rule, I mean, yes, the, the pharaoh was the ruler, right? But he also had advisors, right? He had to keep the people happy, otherwise there would have been unrest, and oh, he could absolutely. have been deposed. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, actually, yeah. in a second. But just to finish a point with Akhenaten real quick. Sure. Here's this person who had this momentous task in front of him uh, to essentially uproot Egyptian religion and can replace it with one where he and his father and this other god were the primary focus. And so what does he do to make that obvious and apparent to everybody? He changes the art style. Right. And that was one of the things that we noticed at the museum. Um, a lot of the sculpture had a great deal of respect for the human form. It wasn't like as accurate as you would say Michelangelo was, because he was like the master of human sculpture, but looked very true to human form. And yet when we get to Akhenaten, we see a very almost cartoonish form of sculpture where certain features even his face his uh he's a caricature of himself his yeah. nose and his jaw they are more more accentuated he his his body for those i mean obviously you can go online and you can you can see a depiction of akhenaten from that time but he is shown with a very large and predominant hips and stomach area which is short too hangs out um or maybe was that just the <laughs> statue Missing legs or something. <laughs> yeah, the, the statue was missing legs. Oh, okay, that's that's why. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> but in this particular case, yeah, he's always shown when he's depicted on carvings and engravings to be much much taller. Yeah, um, but he's very lanky. He has these long, slender arms and legs. Uh, he has this long, protruding, uh, you know, head that kind of pops out. It looks almost alien-like. And there's been so many theories about why he did this. One of them is he was an alien. Of course, Akhenaten had to have been an alien. Um, Many of them are, I know. This is a topic that we've, we've talked of before. Yeah, that's why. very heated. Yeah. Um, um, but, of course, then there's the theory that, you know, he suffered from some sort of uh, deformity. Uh, that he may have been a... Uh, one, of, one that's oftentimes thrown around is Marfan syndrome. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is probably the most notable person in history, in recent history, to, to have the infliction. And essentially, it does cause the elongation of the arms and limbs for long torsos, uh, large prominent features like a large, large ears and a very long slender nose. But I don't buy it. If you look at what was going on at the time of the country, 2% of people could read and write in Egypt. They were the elite and the scribes. Everybody else, how are they going to convey their information? Through art. Right. And so he built a whole new capital city on virgin land that had never really been built before. And he created this whole new artwork to go along with it. And he buried everybody on the eastern side of the Nile now because the sun was predominant and important in his religion. And so he wanted to be on the place where the sun would rise. And he completely changes everything up. And then he more or less disappears from history after his 17th year in power. We do know from... Uh, written records of the time that the city that he had built, Aket Aten, which means on the horizon of the Aten, did suffer the introduction of the bubonic plague. And this had come into Egypt a couple of times before this, okay? And it goes in cycles in many cases. It kind of goes into an incubation period and then becomes 
active in the communities again in and around like seven year periods. And it actually kind of fits up when and about it would have popped up again. And we know of a terrible disease that strikes Aketatin, very likely killing himself, the famous Nefertiti, and probably other members of the royal family at the time, uh, leaving behind this succession of rulers that eventually accumulates in the end of the 18th dynasty. Uh, and of course, one of the most notable was King Tut. Right. Now, we don't know the exact parentage of King Tut. There has been a lot of work done recently with DNA and DNA with mummies and genetics. And so there's a whole lot of stuff to, to debate about. And that's a whole other episode. We could go into just King Tut by himself. And because yeah. it's such a, a bloated topic, I'm not going to go into much more detail than that. We'll, we'll leave that for a proper episode in its own right. But... Real quick, though, while we're on the topic of these out-of-the-box thinkers sure, and these situations where things don't always happen like we would think they would happen in Egypt, right? So Akhenaten coming to power and eventually being wiped out from history. Have you ever heard of Ramesses III? Well, I've heard of Ramesses, right? I've heard of Ramesses because of the Bible, because that was the believed pharaoh who was in power when Moses freed the Hebrews, which is a hotly debated story. There's and a whole other topic. <laughs> definitely a whole other topic. Was that the same Ramesses? Or was no. It, no, it was not. Not even the same member of the family. Different dynasty altogether. So there was this time, right after Akhenaten's period, right? It's called the 19th Dynasty. And that was the time of Ramesses the Great. And, you know, a other series of very well-known rulers of the time. The Setis, for example. Seti the first and second. Ramesses the first and second. Merental. They were all members of the same family. Uh, when you come to... The end of that dynasty, which was ended by one of Egypt's few female rulers, again, not many people realize this, but uh, the, the queen Tuasret uh, was the last ruler of that dynasty. And I have a whole episode planned for female rulers from around the world. Oh, that's a great uh, one. And yeah. I've got a whole little segment on Egypt already written out, ready to go. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to yeah. that in another episode. Sure. But um, here is this time of instability and unknowns and a completely and totally unrelated person to the royal family comes in and usurps the throne and starts the 20th dynasty. And the 20th dynasty, after its first ruler, every other ruler in it was named Ramesses. <laughs> and it was simply because Ramesses the Great was such a powerful and important ruler that all the other rulers want to instill the confidence that that pharaoh had in his people by taking his name. Right. They were not related to Ramesses at all. And the second of that dynasty, of the 20th dynasty, was Ramesses III. Egypt's last true powerful warrior pharaoh. After his death, Egypt would begin a steady decline that would continue up until its eventual fall at the hands of Rome. And what you would find is this really interesting person who was dealing with two invasions at once. He had the Libyans in the east, and he had what were called the Sea People. And the Sea People were a loose confederation of people in the Mediterranean who were essentially banding together to overthrow Egypt and take over Egypt and get a new home for themselves because they had been in this small little islands isolated from all the other big powers, no powerful trade routes. They had nothing really to claim for themselves, but they wanted to take over Egypt. And Ramesses was successful in repelling them, but at a great cost to the economy of Egypt. He had pretty much bankrupt the country in doing so. And he was not very popular within his own special group of people, right? Within his harem, as it's known. He had a wife. He had three wives, actually. Um, but he had a wife who was not the primary wife. Okay, she was not the crowned queen. Her son was not to become king of Egypt. He was just a, a retainer. And so he would, you know, exist within the royal court and have a, a, a you know, place of position of power and what have you, but would never become king himself. And they didn't like that. They wanted power for themselves. And so one of the few instances that we actually see this popping up, which is so extremely rare in Egyptian literature, because they almost always just wrote about things that were good, we have an assassination attempt. Right. The famous pharaoh. one. I think you, we talked about this in the Mummies episode, right? His bark was overturned. His bark was overturned. But there's so many more details about you know what transpired, and I, I just find it fascinating. I just want to go over it real quick. I know we don't have a whole lot of time left in the episode, but I think it's... It's worth mentioning. So we have this situation where um, there was a, an assassination attempt. We don't know exactly how it happened, but there's some recent uh, theories and evidence to suggest that he may have been stabbed and that uh, he survived the initial attack only to later die during the trial. 
And we have the records of the trial and those people who were brought to, to justice. And essentially, uh, you find that the queen and the, and, the, and the prince were the main perpetrators, but they had members of his harem, in addition to other members of his, of his guard and members of his uh, inner circle, right? His butlers, as they were known, which is a very high role. And up to 38 people were accused of being involved with this and sentenced to death. <laughs> um, many of them in horrible, horrible ways. Crucifixion was not exclusive to the Romans. In fact, the Egyptians have been doing it for a lot longer. Some of them were crucified. Others are recorded to have been burnt to death. Um, some were said to have been mutilated rather than be sent to death. And so they had their nose, uh, ears, and lips cut off. And those who did not die of infection were obviously not very popular in society because everyone kind of knew what they did. Uh, those who were of the highest uh, inner circle, death of such means was actually considered to be inappropriate for them, even though they had attempted to kill the king. And so they were allowed to commit suicide, uh, most likely by poisoning. But we find that these such instances, while very rarely recorded, must have happened throughout Egyptian history beyond just the events of Ramesses III. Uh, just we don't really have many accurate records of it going on anywhere else in Egyptian history. One of the first whodunits, as it were. Yeah. But thanks to his money, there's all sorts of new conspiracies about what actually happened. Uh, <coughs> recent CT scans, because the, the bandaging are found around Ramesses III, was extremely heavy around his neck. And through CT scans, they found a very deep knife wound uh, that actually may have gone down as far as the spine. Oh, jeez. Now, we don't know exactly how long he lived after, because you would assume that the trial would have occurred very quickly after the attack. And so it's possible that you know, he may have only lived for a few days uh, after this attack. But um, there's, you know, nobody really knew before this what could have been the likely cause of his death, because there was no other evidence on the body. Right. Uh, many of the people who were, of course, rounded up and accused of this were people who were in charge of preparing and testing his food. And so it had long since been assumed that they had poisoned him or possibly struck him over the head in such a way that caused him to have swelling of the brain and an injury that was not necessarily apparent by a fracture in the skull. So there's been so many different theories thrown around. I mean, in the end, it doesn't really matter. We know he died. And based off of the evidence, he died as a result of, uh, of a conspiracy against his life. It's very interesting to see how much societies change and how much they don't change right yeah this is the, one of the first at least recorded political killings that we see or we don't even know if it was politically motivated probably well, was it most certainly was yeah. because his wife and his his son who would never become king wanted that position sure and if she could take care of his other crown prince who there's a second revolt that happened at the same time that was surrounding the uh, the, the royal palace, because all of this went on at a celebration at Hebedet Madu, which was his, his yeah. uh, temple that he had constructed. What, what I probably should have said was more, we don't know if it was they were the ones directly, the ones who did it, or did they hire somebody to do it. We don't, we're not quite sure, as far as we know, what the, all the conspiracy was behind it. Do we know? We, we haven't pinned it down on who exactly it was. Well, we know, because based on the trial records, that definitely it was his wife and son who were accused of being the main perpetrators of it all. At least, at the very least, a conspirator, not so much a yeah. person who did it. But, but to give you an idea, just really quick, uh, from the trial documents, we have that the, the chief ones among them, of course, were the Queen T, uh, her son, Pen Tuaret, uh, and then we also have his chief executive, if you will, not exactly the vizier, a slightly different role. Um, and then we have seven royal butlers, two overseers of the treasury, uh, two armor or army, just kind of standard, you know, bearers, you know, they were there just to guard the, the king, uh, two royal scribes and a herald. And uh, many of their family members were also rounded up and accused of being in on the plot. Huh. And so that's where they got their, their people for this trial. And of course, it's impossible to say if any of them were 100% guilty. I'm sure some of them were. Some of them were probably just guilty by association. Right. Uh, and of this is also, like I said in one of our previous episodes, uh, an example where they said they had, had used magic, that they had created little figurines of the uh, soldiers who were guarding the king and paralyzed them, prevent them from moving during the attack. <laughs> yeah. I would love to be on the end of that defense. I'm so sorry. I just couldn't move. It had to have been magic. I wasn't, you know, sitting around doing nothing. I'll tell you, though, one last thing. I'm sorry. I, just, I find this so interesting because some of the... I, I told you that some of the members of the harem were directly involved in this and could actually have been the ones who, you know, committed the actual attack, right? 
Well, several of them were brought before the, the judges in this trial, and many of them attempted to seduce the judges <laughs> and were found in bed with them. And those judges were then taken and became part of the trial as well. So there's this whole other scandal that happened. <laughs> it's like something right out of Law and Order. <laughs> it's really great. Right. Such is the story of, uh, of history. A lot of the same things happen over and over again. It just so happens that this was the Egyptian royal family yeah. <laughs> that it was happening to. This has been a really interesting series of vignettes into Egyptian life because we talked about the afterlife a little bit. We talked a little bit about Akhenaten, of course, and we've talked about just some of their common cultural practices. And I mean, this is clearly a topic we have to go over. I'm going to call again. this part one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we're going to have to revisit this because I just barely scratch the surface of what I actually want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, we will definitely do an exact part two to this, I think, after next week, probably, once we get to, uh, after we handle them, take a break and talk about the popes for a, sure, why <laughs> for a little bit. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Uh, of course, as always, guys, don't take our word for it. There's how many Egyptian museums out there that you can go and find out this lovely information? Quite a few. Quite a few. Particularly and, in the Bay Area, there's a couple. And thousands upon thousands of excellent books that have been written on the subject by many great minds. Uh, both modern and old. Uh, and you folks out there, I found a passion for Egypt. And not just because I was surrounded by history my whole life, but because I've made a connection. And I feel like it is by far one of the, the greatest turning points in human history. It was a time when we were able to really create the first great empire and the first culture who really had a chance to be unmatched by anyone else, whether it be because of environment, whether it be because eventually superior force or what have you, it doesn't matter. It was pivotal and so important. And I want you just to think, just think about the ways that it's influenced you in ways that maybe you never thought about before. The word desert is ancient Egyptian. Think about that. We use it all the time, but it's ancient Egyptian word. It originally was Desret, which meant the Red Land, which is what they called the desert area. Greek and Phoenician travelers did not have a word for a desert, so they borrowed the one from the Egyptians. Passed into Greek, which passed into Latin, which passed into English. That is an ancient Egyptian word. And you say it pretty often. Yeah. So keep in mind, listeners, this is uh, not just to me, but to history in general, a very important subject. Definitely. If you guys are interested in contacting us, of course, you can go to our website, nerdonomy.com. And you can find our emails there as well as uh, links to our Facebook pages, as well as follow us on Twitter at Nerdonomy. And uh, Eric, do you have anything else you want to say? If anyone else has any questions on Egypt, uh, Facebook us or email me directly, and I'll be happy to answer them for you. Cool. All right, guys. Well, you have a wonderful week. Eric, thank you very much, as always. Brian, thank you. And you know what? It's good to be back together. It is good to be back, even if you did tap me up at the beginning. So. Yeah, you deserve it.